you can get on the phone and find sellers. You can't just get on the phone and find buyers. For us, it's been a matter of, you know, you go to uh, you go to meetups. Every area has a REA of some sort, REIA, Real Estate Investment Association. You go to those things. They have little events and there'll always be some little presentation about how to get fabulously wealthy, but people don't really go there for the presentation. They go there to meet other people who are investing. They go to meet buyers and sellers and contractors and brokers and insurance people. So before and after the event is where everything really happens. This is the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan, where we interview local real estate investors and professionals to go over tips, tricks, and investing strategies to help you learn about the business and to enable you to achieve your financial goals. And now, welcome to the show. Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. Today, we have Pete Barrow. Pete is one of the owners in a family-run business called Parrot Property Group, where he invests in Indianapolis. He'll talk about his real estate investing journey and the lessons that he learned from going into real estate full-time. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to the show and leave a review. We release episodes every Wednesday and Sunday and release the show notes on our site, everythingrei.com. Enjoy. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Go ahead and introduce yourself and let us know who you are and how did you get into real estate investing? Uh, well, my name is Pete Barrow and uh, I'm in Indianapolis, Indiana. I have a company with my two sons, Sam and Isaac, a Parrot Property Group. We do a little bit of everything. We sort of evolved from management into a whole bunch of other stuff. We're still changing and getting into new new fields. We lived in the D.C. area for, I lived there for 35 years, and both my sons were born there. The uh, older one's 30 years old now, 31. Liked it there, but uh, I was a carpenter, cabinet maker most of that time, and I always daydreamed about getting into buying houses and fixing them up and doing something like that. But the uh, the price of stuff out there is uh, is insane. And the other thing is, where, when there are areas that are cheap, they suddenly start to catch on a little bit. It happens instantly. There's so many smart people and so much money that uh, by the time I would think of it, a lot of uh, a lot of smarter people would have already bought it all up. So it never really happened for me there. But uh, about six years ago, my older son, Sam, he was never very happy in the city. And he just started uh, driving around the country. He saved up some money, just started driving around the country to different cities. He'd been to California, went to Texas and all over the West and the South. And uh, this is the place he liked, which struck me as a little strange. I'd never really given any thought to the Midwest. But he uh, he came through here several times. And then he came here and he uh, just rented a room and started studying the real estate. He'd, he'd heard me talk about it so much, you know, the idea of buying rental properties. He just rented a little room full of bed bugs and started driving around, you know, learning the, uh, learning the neighborhoods. He spent about a month doing that. And by the time he got done, he knew an awful lot uh, because he did nothing but drive around, you know, and talk to people. So uh, I came out here and looked at it, and uh, we found a great little, well, not so little, a great, great big old 20s four square in a beautiful place, beautiful but slightly distressed. And he bought it, and then I started coming out here and spending a few months every year working on it. And then we were like, well, uh, maybe we can do this again. And uh, we bought a foreclosure. A du- another duplex. And then we bought a another duplex from a landlord who was sick of being a landlord. And it just kind of went uh, from one thing to the next. We, at some point, we, we decided that we, you know, the problem was money. We were, we were just kind of paying for stuff as we could as we went along. And uh, we were kind of hitting a wall there. 
And then uh, one of my old carpentry customers who I'd been working for for 25 years, just out of the blue, I told her what we were doing and she offered to invest money with us. It's uh, it's very nice to have some people you've known for a long time and worked for and they trust you and they'll do a thing like that. I didn't even have to ask. So Sam found a big package of beautiful old duplexes and they invested, you know, something like $900,000 to get them. That was our start. We managed those for them, did the repairs and split the profits. Then over the next year or so, they started to realize that uh, maybe your listeners don't want to hear this, but real estate isn't always as passive as they'll they'll tell you it is. It's uh, it's work. And uh, even with us doing all the work, they were on the phone with us all the time and they decided to sell and we managed to get financing and buy them out. Um, so uh, that was, I mean, they made a nice profit and we got a package of 13 houses at 26 doors. So that was a great start and we couldn't have done it without an investor like that. And so what was the structure like? They put down the money and you guys do all the work and you guys put the profits 50-50? We found the houses, they put down, well, Sam found the houses, they put down the money. We put together a crew to do rehab and uh, maintenance. My younger son was managing a pizza place back in on the East Coast then. He he came out here and started managing the properties. The deal was we were going to just split profits and maybe someday sell them off and we'd split the profits from that too. But as, as I said, they, uh, they got tired of the real estate business. They, uh, they wanted to get their money back and they did with a nice profit. And we, we wound up with a nice little portfolio. So you guys all moved from DC to Indianapolis once you guys started doing the business. Yeah, I moved out a, a little after that happened. I'm, well, I moved out here about, about three years ago and started working full-time, fixing up and maintaining and trying to also do some business development, but uh, not as much as they'd like me to do because my tendency is if you leave me alone, I'm just going to go work on a house. So, so what, what are you guys doing now? Well, we, uh, we've actually we've been selling lately. Things are high here. They're not high compared to where you are, but uh, compared to how they've been here, things are high. We, when we bought these duplexes, we thought, you know, I thought maybe in – 20 years, they'll have tripled in value and that'll be a nice, uh, that'll be a nice thing for the kids, but they've already tripled in value. Part of that was that we put some work into them, but part of it was just uh, Indianapolis has really come up, uh, at least, at least in the areas where we are. We didn't just buy them randomly. We had a reason for buying them where we bought them and we turned out to be right. So what did you buy them for and how much money did you put into each property? How much did they rent for, and what are you kind of selling for? We paid probably an average of sixty for huge old. I don't know if you know what these places look like. I don't know if you know what a four square is. It's just a big square house with a hip roof. There are a lot of them in this city. They built them in the twenties because there was an oil. Uh, they found oil in Indiana. There was a huge boom. Sometimes they'll make them doubles, and they're half again as long, so they're not square anymore. They're rectangular, but they're huge old houses. Uh, so sixty grand for one of those is pretty good. We probably put an average of 20 into each of them, fixing them up. So there you're all in at about 80. They rent from anywhere from 750 a side on up. A couple of them are five bedrooms and are renting for close to 1100 bucks. I know your eyes are getting real big. <laughs> five bedrooms? Jeez. Yeah. Five. Well, the last couple of bedrooms are up, you know, in an attic under a garret, but they're bedrooms and you can put some kids in there. So, uh, and those things rent for a lot. 
we've sold them for yeah okay so we haven't tripled our money but uh, we've sold them for 190 some of them have gone for that much uh, some of some of them for less so we've more than doubled our money i think some of the cheaper ones that we did less work on we have tripled our money but uh, i'm not sure you can buy here now and triple expect to double or triple your money in the next uh, few years but uh, we we got here just i think at the last time when you could kind of expect, well, not expect, but hope to do that. Uh, if we'd gotten here a couple of years earlier, eight years ago, you know, you could buy for pennies pretty much. So after you got those duplexes, what do you guys do after that? Part of what happened is when we got the duplexes, the same seller had another package of four duplexes and Sam just found somebody who wanted them and got them and passed them along. And that was our first wholesale deal. I don't think anybody, I don't think any of us had heard of wholesaling or knew what it was uh, up to that point. But then we realized that was wholesaling and that maybe we could do more of that. So we went from buying these places, fixing them up, holding them, managing them, maintaining them. Then we, now, now we thought, well, okay, this is uh, we can wholesale too. So we started, uh, we started working to, to get into the wholesale business. And uh, we had a nice company name, Parrot, which seems very random, but uh, we have a, nice colorful parrot logo and it catches people's attention and uh, it works. Uh, it makes a nice big billboard. You, you can't miss it when you drive by. So we started, uh, we started wholesaling. And then of course the, the nice thing is the wholesaling feeds the uh, continuing buy and hold stuff. Cause we're looking at hundreds of houses a year. In some years uh, we would find, I don't know, half a dozen places that we liked out of that and we'd keep them and the rest we'd hand on as wholesale deals. Uh, lately, I think last year we bought two houses for ourselves. This year we bought two houses, but it's not like we're keeping only the good stuff and handing off the junk. We have particular things we want that we're looking for. We know what our buyers want and they can have it because it's not exactly what we want. We have a particular house that we want and that's all we want. So we're skimming those off the top and keeping them. So yeah, we've continued to grow our portfolio like that, although, like I said, our portfolio has been shrinking lately. We're we're uh, we're starting to realize that the you know the rent numbers compared to the value of the house were pretty good uh, when we got this stuff. In fact, they were great. Um, now they're yeah, for those houses for those duplexes. You know the rent numbers aren't that good, so we're selling them and buying other stuff that hasn't come up like that yet. You know, in a in a in a city, they're always well a city like this, which is still there are a lot of un, undeveloped underdeveloped areas. I guess you'd say, and uh, who knows when or if they're going to come up, but we have our thoughts about what areas might come up. And we've been pretty, I don't want to say smart. We've been pretty lucky. We've been pretty right about that so far. So we're continuing to, we're now not buying these gigantic duplexes. We're looking for little two bedroom bungalows that are easy to rehab and maintain. You have no idea the amount of work it takes to rehab a gigantic duplex that's a hundred years old and to keep it in shape. They're beautiful. I love them. I, I live in one. I'm in, I'm in it right now. So what are you guys doing to generate your deal flow? That's constantly evolving. I can tell you my part of it, which is very minor is just walking around and being friendly and meeting people. And sometimes that turns into a house and usually it just turns into a pleasant conversation with some guy in a restaurant. Once in a while, it really results in something, but the bulk of it comes from, it has been direct mail, a very nice, brightly colored postcards with a parrot on them, which people get. But what's happening now is uh, every time you go to look at a house, every time someone calls you up from a postcard, 
you go look at the house, there's a stack of 10 postcards there. And he called us because we have a parrot and no one else does. But it's getting so competitive with the postcard business that we're starting to send fewer postcards and do more phone calls. We have a woman who just calls people on the phone all day. We have a little office right now. It's in the other side of this house, but uh, she comes here and sits and calls people. And I guess the trick is coming up with those leads. It's the same as with the with the mailings. There are times when we would just send a postcard to every single person in a certain zip code, you know, every owner. But more often, it's a matter of, uh, you know, Sam is uh, my older son. When he came out here, he was uh, building up a little website, web hosting and design business. So he's he's a tech madman. So he's been very good about, you know, mining the data for, this is not, I'm sure a lot of people can do this, but we can send a postcard to every everyone who owns a house in Indianapolis and is over 65 and lives out of state and has been cited for not mowing their grass. That's a guy who might be sick of owning his rental property in Indianapolis or something like that. We've had pretty good luck with uh, targeted mailings like that. And We've tried stuff like just going down the tax delinquent lists. Uh, I did a lot of that when I first got here, and not much ever came of that. Again, too many people doing that, just going down every single person on the tax list. How much are you sending out in terms of direct mail? We were sending, I don't know, it's not not huge compared to some people, Ten or 15,000 postcards a month. That's a lot. <laughs> uh, there are people who do a lot more. There's, there's a guy here who probably sends 100,000 a month. There are people in Texas who, well, you know, everything's bigger there. But we're now I don't know what we're doing in terms of postcard volume, because I think we're really focusing on the the calls. And we have, you know, we have a billboard, we have stickers everywhere. We have T-shirts with our number and and we have a nice website. And uh, Sam has been pretty good at uh, SEO, you know, getting that up to the near the top of the ranking. So if you Google, of course, if you Google Parrot, you get us. But if you Google sell my house fast or sell my house in Indianapolis or, you know, sell my abandoned house or sell my hoarder house, you know, you will be in the top two or three probably. So. And for your caller, how many times is she calling people every single day? A lot enough that I would go crazy doing it. You know, I come in and she's calling and then two hours later I come back through the office and she's calling. It takes a lot of guts to call nonstop. Well, you know, uh, I did it with the tax lists, and this is actually an interesting story, for, maybe for your listeners who do want to do that. Because if you're just if you're getting it, just getting into this, and you don't have to get a lot of volume, and you just want to get a house, you just want to get a start. Um, we had a house we were very interested in because it was right next to a house we owned, and we wanted to, actually wanted to buy the house and tear it down because it was pretty awful. And uh, nobody could find the owner. So I got, there are these websites where you can like find the seller where you can get everything in the world about this person. So I put the house name in and I got 50 pages of information about everyone related to anyone who ever lived in that house. And I just started calling and about the 50th phone call I made and people were pretty nice. They didn't just slam the phone in my ear. I mean, this is Midwest. But about the 50th call, I called this woman and I was like, did you or did your parents ever live at blah, blah, blah address? Or do you know anything about that house? And she said, yes. She said, how'd you find me at my beauty shop? And I was like, I don't know. Lady. <laughs> it was just, it was on the list. But anyway, we did, uh, we did get hold of the, the, well, the owners were deceased, but the new, their kids. Turned out we didn't get the house, but that was, uh, I think it had already been lost at tax sale and they didn't understand that. So, uh. But you, you can sit down with that information and just keep digging and digging and digging. We turned up a lot of uh, a lot of owners, just never quite worked out uh, that we got one of them. 
Do you have a specific software website that you like to use to look up owner information? Actually, my son, Sam, is writing software, and he's now writing some other stuff that will be for industry professionals, for uh, investors and brokers and wholesalers. Anything that has to do with tech, he's going he's gonna to write it. We're not going to use stuff that's just out there available. And how are you guys getting your buyers list for when you have a, a deal to wholesale to? That's the harder part. Um, that really is not something you can just go out and get. That's something you have to build up and it just takes time. That's why a lot of beginning wholesalers will just, they can find a house, but they can't find a buyer. So they'll go to an established wholesaler like us and JV joint venture on it and split the proceeds. That is the thing that you can't just get on the, you can get on the phone and find sellers. You can't just get on the phone and find buyers. For us, it's been a matter of, you know, you go to, uh, you go to meetups. Every area has a REIA of some sort, REIA, Real Estate Investment Association. You go to those things. They have little events and there'll always be some little presentation about how to get fabulously wealthy, but people don't really go there for the presentation. They go there to meet other people who are investing. They go to meet buyers and sellers and contractors and brokers and insurance people. So before and after the event is where everything really happens. Uh, People stand around and eat and drink and exchange cards. So you go to those things and maybe in a three-hour meet, you'll you'll make a couple of good contacts, but you keep doing that. And over time, you'll... uh, You'll meet more and more people and they'll lead you to more people. And that's how you build up a a buyer's list. That's one of the hardest skills for someone who wants to be a wholesaler is uh, building up a list of buyers who actually have cash. That's right. Who actually close and don't just try to daisy chain your wholesale deal. There's a huge number of people in wholesaling now who, you know, have seen a podcast or taken a course and, you know, they've been told how easy it is to wholesale and so they get some cards printed and maybe they actually find a house but you know then finding a good buyer is the trick like i said you can always jv with an established wholesaler and in every city there're going to be half a dozen people who are doing it pretty seriously and move a few hundred houses a year and then there'll be a lot of people just kind of trying to catch on and some of them do i mean i know a guy i met uh, i met a guy at one of these meets a couple of years ago he's become a great friend He's done a lot of things in his life. I didn't really think, uh, didn't really take his efforts to be a wholesaler very seriously, but he just writes his little cards by hand and sends them out 50 at a time. But you know what? The guy has found a couple of nice houses and he's made money on them. It can be done. Now he's pretty smart, but I don't know how he's doing it. I think he's really just, you know, they call it driving for dollars. You drive around, you look for, look for a house that's boarded up and has tall grass. And then you go to the city, you know, the tax lists, and you find out who owns it. And then you send them a postcard. Maybe the fact that his hand car, his postcards are handwritten and look kind of pitiful, maybe that, uh, maybe that makes him seem, you know, not like some businessman who's going to skin them and they call him. And he's he's done he's done okay. He's, I mean, he couldn't live off of it, not yet, at least. But but you know, he's he's finding a few houses here and there, and they're and they're good. And he. He gets good deals on him. I think he's pretty good at negotiating prices. That's the other thing, the other hard skill. I have no role in that either. But uh, when we when we turn up a lead on a house, I'll I'll sometimes go look at it if it's something we think we might keep, or if it's something we might hand off to a seller that we really want to make sure he gets just what he wants. Otherwise, my younger son Isaac goes and looks at him. And then the really important skill is, and and again, I think this just takes time to develop, just to walk through a house and in about five or 10 minutes, you know, take some pictures, make some estimate of just how good and bad it is and 
get a picture of which of our buyers would like to have it and how much they might pay for it. And that tells us, you know, what we can pay for it. I just don't think that's one of those skills you can really learn from a book or or uh, nothing against podcasts or from a podcast. Yeah, you have to actually go out and do it. Just got to go out and do it. And and he's he's very good at it. He can he can walk through a place and know right. He, he doesn't know that much about houses, but he can walk through and get some picture of how bad this is and who's going to want it and what they'll pay for it and how much work it's going to need. And he's he's been very good at matching houses with buyers and making realistic estimates. And, and then he handles, you know, making the offer and getting the contract signed and doing the closing. Now that you guys have been in Indianapolis for quite some time now, you have said that Indianapolis is now kind of at its peak and you're trying to sell some of your inventory. Are you still trying to buy more stuff in Indianapolis or are you trying to move out somewhere else? No, we're still buying here. We still like it here. It's just getting harder. I wouldn't swear it's at its peak. No one can know. I just know that, uh, you know, compared to the number of well-paying jobs around here, it seems like there are an awful lot of little tiny bungalows that are selling for half a million bucks or trying to sell for half a million bucks. I know that's nothing where you are, but here it's it's nothing on the East Coast either. But here it's kind of a lot. We're, we're just wondering how much more of that the local economy will support. And the other thing, this isn't very scientific, but I kind of trust it. A lot of people who've done this for many, many years and have lived through ups and downs, including the last big one, they say, you know, you just get a kind of a feel for when the market is sort of softening. It feels like that lately. So it feels like just before the last big crash. It doesn't mean there's going to be another crash like that. You know, stuff is, uh, I mean, you, you can do that scientifically too, I suppose. You can look at, uh, I think what they say is look at days on market. Days on market starts to go up. And when days on market has gone up quite a bit, then prices start to come down. You know, who knows whether that's just a tiny fluctuation or of a sign of a, a sign of a real downturn. I don't have any idea what's happening to days on market here. I just know that uh, things things seem very, very high. I've heard people say, I haven't seen stuff like that going for prices like that since, you know, 2007. And we all know what happened after that. So are we still looking for places here? Yes. But like I said, we're we're finding new new areas that really aren't developed. But this, this has kind of uh, always been our strategy. It's just now we're moving to different areas to do it. We don't want to buy in the hot areas because that's already that's already been bid up. We don't want want to buy in areas that we don't think are ever going to be improving. So we always are looking for places that are right next to hot areas or between two hot areas or along a road that leads from a hot area to downtown. Basically, you want to buy in path of progress. Yeah, and no one can tell you how to do that. And uh, part of it is the boys are sitting behind the computer trying to figure it out and. But I'm driving around all day and I see, you know, okay, here's a street where nothing was happening last year. And now two people are doing rehabs and it's right next to this good stuff, you know, so maybe we should be looking at that. We bought a little tiny two bedroom bungalow that is really junked up, but it's right below an area that's it's on the west side of town. It's really come up. There's a lot of new tech development. And from this hot area, you can drive across the bridge and you're right in the city and you're right in this, uh, the university and all these medical facilities and tech stuff. So that's promising. And we found a little place just right below this very quickly gentrifying area, but it's on a little street where nobody's doing anything yet. And we got it for pennies. We got it for 13,000 bucks. We're, we do a lot of our own work. So we're, you know, we can rehab it very well and economically, but you can, 
walk from this house over to the next main street and turn right and you can see the downtown and you can be downtown. I timed it. You can be downtown in four and a half minutes. I mean, right in the heart of downtown. I mean, my sons immediately they were like, let's just wholesale this thing. You know, somebody will love this. But my thing was, yeah, I love it and let's keep it. So we're fixing it up. So yeah, we're still buying. We're just buying very different stuff. We're, we're buying stuff that's, we're not thinking it's going to be hot in two years. It's a much longer term now. How many deals do you guys typically do per year? And what's your breakdown between your wholesales, your flips, and your holds? Well, uh, wholesale deals, I don't know what we did last year. Probably 50 to 70. It wasn't huge last year, but it was... That's a lot, okay? (laughs) Especially for us. We only do maybe like 10 at most a year. By us, you mean your company? By us, I mean a lot of investors here in the Bay Area. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, in the Bay Area, we would uh, we would not have done one single. <laughs> we uh, the money it costs to play out there is just just sounds insane. But we well, our first year that we did wholesaling, we we moved a lot more than that. It's uh, we've uh, it's actually slowed down a little bit. You know, it's it's gotten a little harder to find. It's just getting harder to find good cheap houses. So yeah, we probably moved between fifty and seventy places a year, and. Out of that, like I said, last year we only bought two for ourselves. This year we only, so far we've only bought two for ourselves. Most like I said, oh, as far as flips, we never wanted to be in the flipping business. But what happened? I mean, I call them accidental flips. We've bought several places that uh, I went in and started trying to do a really quality rehab on because the ones we want to keep, uh, you know, the ones we want to hold long term, we, we don't want to have maintenance problems. We want to have happy tenants. So. We've replumbed and rewired a lot of them and, you know, put decent stuff in them. But what's happened again and again is by the time we get the house fixed up and we look at what we could rent it for and what we could sell it for, things have come up so much, it's not worth keeping. We have a little place downtown that uh, I loved it and I would have loved to keep it, but we bought it for 50. We probably put 70 into it. So we're at 120 and we could have rented it for 12 or 1300 bucks a month. So that hits the famous 1% rule for whatever that's worth. But then we realized we can probably sell this thing for 200 to 240. Then if we're keeping it, we have a $240,000 house that we're getting $1,200 a month for. That's not worth it. So we put it on the market. And what happened was it was right across the street from a big warehouse, which when we bought it, the warehouse had a recycling company in it. We took a long time to fix the place up. By the time we got it fixed up, the warehouse was full of little hipster craftsy businesses. There's a distillery and a a brew pub and some craft shops, you know, a place that does sculptural welding and so forth. So it's hipster heaven down there. And, uh, And this place is right across the street. You look out your window and you see this big blue warehouse. And uh, not only that, it had a little creek in the back, which I thought was I thought was a problem because it puts put us in a put us in a floodway, at least part of the yard. But then I started going out there and sitting, and I realized, hey, this is kind of pretty. There are ducks in this thing, so we built a little tiny deck out there. It became a really charming house in a neighborhood that, in the two years we took to get around to fixing it up, the neighborhood just caught fire. So that's the kind of flips we do. We have never set out on purpose to flip a house. We've fixed some houses up to keep and then realized, hey, this is a flip. That's uh, that's happened kind of a lot. What's a typical deal for you guys when it comes to wholesaling? What are you guys trying to net per wholesale deal? I'm not sure there is typical. Um, I, I'm not sure I could give you an average, but we have had deals where we made 
20 and 30 grand. And we've had deals where we made a thousand bucks or less. I think, I don't think we've ever lost money. I think the worst we've done is to make 500 bucks. Um, but we have sold everything from, we have people who like properties in the, I don't want to say ghetto, but I can't think of a better word. There are people who are good at coming in and knocking those houses into shape and managing them. And they can, they can buy those places and make money off of them, which we can't do and don't want to do. Those houses around here, I don't know if you can still find them for five, eight, ten thousand bucks, but I know you can still find them for twelve, fifteen thousand bucks. And then mark them up, you know, two, three, five, seven, eight thousand bucks, depending on how well you did and who wants it and what he thinks it's worth. There's not a huge profit on any one of these places, but if you get enough volume. So that's one thing we've done is uh, we've sold, bought and sold a lot of little, very inexpensive properties in really distressed neighborhoods. Now, of course, even there, you know, it's so hard to do this from out of state because uh, when I say distressed neighborhood, there's a huge range of distressed neighborhoods. There are neighborhoods where you go there and you just get back in the car because you're afraid to get out of it. And there are other neighborhoods right, you know, a few blocks away that seem perfectly nice. They, they feel safe. They're People are trying to keep the places fixed up, you know, so real estate is block to block everywhere in the world, I suppose. So we've bought, a, bought and sold a fair amount of that. Uh, lately, what we've been finding is occasionally we'll find a suburban place. There seems to be a huge amount of interest. We're, we're not really interested in them because I don't see I don't see how the suburbs ever really catch fire. You know, a suburban neighborhood is not just going to suddenly get hip and everybody move there like some of these downtown places have the potential to do. You know, my, my little street with four and a half minutes away from downtown and a charming little block of bungalows, that that could conceivably take off sometime. But the suburbs, I don't see doing that, but they're stable. And so a lot of people like that. A lot of people prefer that. There seem to be a lot of institutional buyers now buying that stuff up here. Uh, I hear it's hedge funds. I don't know what their plan is, but they are they're going to the sheriff's sales and buying everything up and driving the price up. So local investors are just kind of giving up on a lot of that stuff, but they're also buying from, from us and other wholesalers, I suppose. But those, those deals are a lot more profitable. Those, those deals, sometimes you'll make 20 or 30 grand on them. Well, what makes Indianapolis so great? Like why did you guys decide to stay with Indianapolis over all the other cities in the world? We like the, uh, the sort of the atmosphere and this, it's kind of wide open. There's no traffic. There, Big wide streets and beautiful old housing stock, and the people are pretty friendly compared to where we're from. But my son is uh, Sam, the first guy who came out here. He's pretty cold blooded, and he went and ran all the numbers before he actually moved out here. And it seems that the economy here is pretty stable. It doesn't boom. It doesn't bust. It just sort of keeps creeping up slowly. The uh, what the area has to recommend it is just, you know, central location. There's a big FedEx hub here, and I doubt they'll move that because this is where it works for it to be. But they're also, you know, there are a couple of big employers. There's Lilly and there's a Rolls Royce jet engine factory. But the city made a deliberate step, I don't know when, 30 years ago, to attract a lot of small industry. And so there's, you know, there's like a cinder block factory and an envelope factory. And there's just a lot of little plants that employ, you know, a hundred people. It's the center of the K 
county government and the state government. There are eight or nine colleges and universities. It's just a lot of different stuff here. It's not like there's just one big car plant and if it closes, you know, we're doomed. So uh, he looked at the numbers, numbers like that, and the fact that it's uh, pretty landlord friendly, or it has been. I guess every place is getting less so. But uh, legally, it's it's pretty landlord friendly. It's easy to deal with non-paying tenants, or relatively easy. And he just kind of trusted that this is a stable place that will just keep slowly getting better, and you can kind of count on it. I think other people are just buying here because it's cheap. That's not always a good enough reason. You know, sometimes there's a real good reason things are cheap. It's cheap, but it's also, I think it's pretty stable. So do you have any advice for our investors here in the Bay Area who don't really know much about Indianapolis? I know uh, we have dealt with a lot of out-of-state investors. And again, I don't want to be negative. I don't want to discourage anybody. But one way we've met a lot of -of out-of-state investors is by buying their stuff back after they've failed as investors. Now, don't let this happen to you, is what I would say. I do know some out-of-state investors who have succeeded, but they've all come here and sort of established a foothold. I know a guy from uh, Colorado, which is... uh, Closer, but it's still like 1,100 miles. He's here all the time. He uh, he rents a storage unit and keeps a truck here. He knows everybody in town. If I go in a restaurant or a bar with him, they know him there. He knows all the wholesalers. He knows all the neighborhoods. He does a lot of his own work. He's been very smart and realistic and hands-on, and he's done fine. He he's Even he made one pretty bad mistake, which is going to cost him. But in general, he's bought good stuff in good spots, and he's paid reasonable prices for it. What's happened in the past, I mean, there was there was a spell where a lot of people were buying from a guy who, well, he's now being, I don't know if he's being prosecuted for fraud, but he's probably going to. There was a big scandal. I don't, I don't really think I should name names, but a lot of people lost money with that guy here. But there are other turnkey companies that are selling to out-of-staters here who are just fine. So I would say either come here and get to know the place and get to know the people. And that way you can, you know, make your own determination about where you want to buy and you know, what you're looking for. Or, you know, I don't know anyone who's done this, but it's always seemed to me if you're out of state, if you can afford uh, nicer areas, those are a safer bet and probably you don't get as good a return out of them. But if you can buy in A neighborhoods, you know, old established neighborhoods, you'll have tenants you don't have to worry about. You know, you'll have houses that won't need much work. You can get good management. There there are a lot of people who manage but don't want to manage in certain neighborhoods, but everyone's fine with managing in an A neighborhood. So, you know, if you're willing to accept not a huge return, you can you can buy in places like that. And then, you know, okay, you're you're not getting rich, but your tenant is sitting there paying off your mortgage on a nice established a good house in a nice established neighborhood that will probably continue to slowly inch up in value. So you could do worse than that. But uh, it's a trade-off. You know, the unfortunately, the way a lot of people make money is buy the cheapest stuff in the worst neighborhoods, keep their investment super low, do no maintenance work. And then since you've got very little money in it, your return looks good if you're getting $500 a month. I don't recommend that to anybody, especially someone who lives out of state. Because that's where you really get a lot of horror stories, you know, uh, about theft and fraud and so forth. There are people here who know how to do that and they make it work and they produce a, they create a decent product and they're decent landlords and they get the best tenants they can get. And everybody's, you know, that's a service. You're, it's a service to provide a, 
a low cost house. You know, there's nothing wrong with doing that. If you can still afford to maintain it and take care of your tenants, it's labor intensive. It takes someone who knows how to do it and can keep an eye on things. Pretty hard to do that from out of state, I think. So basically try to get some boots on the ground, get some local knowledge. I'm really uh, hands-on about everything anyway. I really believe in, you know, our method has been to compensate for lack of money by just doing a lot of work, both finding properties by just driving around and talking to people, doing the rehab and maintenance ourselves or with our crew or with contractors that we know personally, uh, and then managing it ourselves. So doing everything ourselves. That's been our method. So that's all I really know how to advise people to do. I know there are a lot of people, I know understand most people don't want to fly from California to Indianapolis to do that. What I might say is, is there any place in California you can invest or right over the state line? You know, I, I think it's important to just have some kind of contact with the place you want to buy. You know, if you know, if you're in California, but maybe you're from Oklahoma and your family's still there and uh, you know people and your uncle is a contractor and your brother's an electrician and your, you know, your, your niece is an accountant. And uh, compared to what it costs to buy a house in Oklahoma, you probably have a lot of money. So maybe that's a place you could go and you could put together a little team and you could buy stuff there and you could do, you could do fine because you know, if you can't trust your family, why live? So if you have family members or old friends who are in a place like this, I know places like that who where you know, back in Virginia and Tennessee, where if if I weren't so busy here, I would know where to go and invest because I, I know these areas and I have friends, that old, old, old friends there. Of course, if you just grew up in California, you always lived in California and never left California, I guess that doesn't work. But maybe even maybe even then, are, are there some places in the north that are a little cheaper? Is there any place where you can go that's a little cheaper or is it just all just through the roof? Are you asking me personally? Yeah. Oh, I love the Bay Area. I actually invest in Bay Area. Um, I do have some properties in Jacksonville, Florida, though, and I don't go very often. Right. But, you know, for those other investors who are trying to figure out what to do, yeah, this is for them. How do you manage your stuff in Jacksonville? Did you buy it all turnkey and you have it professionally managed and so forth? Or? Uh, I did not buy it turnkey, but I do have a property manager over there who is taking care of my stuff. Right. But we keep in contact pretty often. Yeah, yeah. It's about it's about having good people, you know. Uh, no, no matter whether whether you're local or not, I, I guess it's more important if you're out of state to have someone who's good and who you trust. We've been extremely lucky. We just stumbled into a little hive of uh, a handyman and all his friends who are all terrific. They're very good builders. They have a very good work ethic. They're not too expensive. If we didn't have them, I don't know what we would do. I still work, but I can't keep up with it like I used to. So having a team like that and the woman who's in our office all day is terrific. The buyers we work with have been great. The, we've just been incredibly lucky about finding good people to, to work with. I always heard people say, oh, business, it's all about relationships. And I thought that's just one of those things you say, but it really is. It really is about meeting people you can work with and uh, have some trust for. If you can do that, it's a, it's a huge asset. So what's next for your company? Well, we've, uh, like I said, we've gone from managing to buy and hold to wholesaling. We're now starting a full service brokerage. We're, uh, we're going to be moving into a little home office to do that probably within the next couple of weeks. The two, the boys are both licensed uh, and we have a brokerage license. So we're going to be doing, we're going to see where that, where that takes us. And like I said, the other thing is we're, uh, my uh, older son, Sam is working on the software, which he uh, wants to market. So yeah, that's uh, we're we're gonna keep on doing what we've always done, 
just pecking away at the wholesaling, looking, finding the occasional deal we want to keep, fixing it up, and then seeing if whether it's actually a rental or an accidental flip, and uh, just go on with what we're doing and uh, and see see where this brokerage leads and the software. No plans beyond that, but that's enough. That's kind of a lot already. It's someone told me we have the perfect vertically integrated business. I went and looked that up. We have we have all these things that feed into each other and and work with each other. And it's still just the, the three of us plus our crew. So Sounds very exciting. So thanks so much for your time. Uh, how can people get in contact with you? Thank you, Sean. Um, you can call us at 317-204-2900. You can uh, find our website at parrothomebuyers.com. If you just Google Parrot Indianapolis or Parrot Homebuyers or Parrot Property Group, you'll come up with us. That's it. Well, Pete, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you sharing everything with us and I hope to see you guys soon. Take care. Here are some of the key takeaways from this episode. If you're going to send out direct mail, make sure you have some unique feature that makes your pieces stand out. As a wholesaler, the most important thing to have is a good buyers list. So go to meetups and make more connections. To be a true investor, you have to go out and do things. You can't just read books or listen to podcasts. And if you're struggling to find good deals or digest a large price point of properties where you live, See if you have family members who live in other parts of the country. Get them to be your boots on the ground team and create a real estate investing group with your family. I hope you liked this episode. You can find the show notes and other episodes on our site, everythingrei.com. Thanks and have a great day. This was another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a five-star rating. It'll take less than a second and it'll help a lot. You can contact me at seanpanrealty at gmail.com. That's S-E-A-N-P-A-N. R-E-A-L-T-Y at gmail.com. Thanks and have a great day.